a listener production. Howdy, you are listening to episode 130 of the Howie Games Part B, featuring local boy made good, very good, Lee Diffie. Hit it. Can I divert you completely in a different direction for a moment? Sure, sure. You've, you've called a lot of motorsport. Yep. I know you were calling at Pocono when Wilson passed away. I'm sure yep. there have been others in your time that we don't need to dwell on. What do you do as a broadcaster I was at Bathurst when Mark Porter passed away and very early doors, mate, I was there when I think his name was Graham Beveridge, the marshal at the Australian Grand Prix when Villeneuve had that crash. But I've never been on air in those situations, but I understand the pall that falls over a racetrack when there's a thought that someone's passed away. There's no training for that. What do you do in a broadcast? You've seen that many accidents. You can tell the difference between a bad accident just from a driver reaction or not and a potentially um, fatal accident. What do you do in the box, mate? It's a morbid thought, but it's this is a time when you cannot say the wrong thing. No. Um, it's And the, the one thing that really weighs heavy on you um, is that you know that, that more often than not uh, it's the family's only conduit of information oh. is us. And Watching the broadcast. Yes. And if we're not getting any information, how do you how do you walk this delicate line of saying the right thing and the most appropriate thing in this most complex of situations? Um, you know, we had one uh, again at Pocono um, three years after Justin's death, um, which was Robert Wickens. Mm. Phenomenal talent, phenomenal driver. And he got sent up into the fence and, Again, we didn't know if Robert was dead or alive. Here comes the red machine, the Lucas Oil entry of Canada's Robert Wickens. Oh, that's going to be taped through there. Oh, touch. oh my God. Oh, that's Robert Wickens. And his that's teammate is into him as well, James Hinchcliffe. That was ugly. That was frightening. Thank goodness he's very much alive. And he is a, an incredible um, spinal cord injury uh, recovery story. Um, he still needs to get around with assistance and in his chair, uh, but he does, he can get up and he can do things and has driven a paddle shift car um, in recent weeks. So he's, a, he's one of the good stories. But it's horrible because more than likely, Howie, it, this situation doesn't get resolved in uh, 5 or 10 or 15 minutes, you know, um, the Robert Wickens one, I think we were filling for an hour and a half, close to two hours. And the AMR safety team are right there with Robert Wickens on the right-hand side of your screen. More assistance coming for James Hinchcliffe. And you can't, it's not It's not right to keep showing the replay. No. Because what happens if that athlete is has passed, you know? So it, it's, and there's no training for that either. There's no guidebook for that. You just have to... Um, you have you you have to hope uh, that within your own sensitivity as a human that the right words come come into your mouth and come into your mind at, at the time and and unfortunately, as you and I continue our tenure in broadcasting, um, me me more so than you uh, because of the the nature of the sport that I commentate on. Unfortunately, as you as your tenure gets longer, mm. you you become more exposed to that. Thankfully, though, with with advances in safety. 
let's hope that those cases dwindle. You spent time in America with the Speed Channel. I'll move on from that because I want to talk about you and ask you questions about you as a broadcaster, mate. So you won't remember this, but I pretty clearly recall when I reckon we first met, and I don't know what year it was because I can't remember when I started at Channel 10. It was 2005, 2006, one of the one of the couple, and I'd come across from Channel 7 as a producer and it was the first really cracking at a full-time on-air job, and I had to do some news stories and then be involved in motorsport. And my first ever job with the motorsport team was the Australian Grand Prix, which would have been the first race of the year. And uh, I, we walked in. I walked into the demountable out there at the back, you know, off uh, Canterbury Road, and it was the, you know, all these people I hadn't met before, and I was trying to figure out how, how you become, how you be full time on air rather than part time as I'd been. I'd been producing, and the beautiful production manager Anthea Maida welcomed me. What a beautiful woman, and and said, "Oh, these are the guys you're going to be working with." And over in the corner, there's you. I reckon it was Billy Woods, it was your lunatic mate, Daryl Beatty, <laughs> and it was Greg Rust. Yeah. And and I came over and you're all very g'day and welcome. And then but it's a busy time, the Grand Prix. At that stage, you know, we're on air for 30, 40 hours across four days. You guys had all your interviews to do and your preparation to do. And the thing that hit me, Diff, was how much preparation was going on. Crompton was probably involved as well and, and Rusty especially. You just had pages and pages of notes and research and you were putting all this information into your heads. And I thought, this is a long story, but I'll get to the point, mate. I thought, right, this is what you need to do to be a sports broadcaster. And, and I sat there and I tried to replicate what you guys are doing that weekend and, mate, to be completely frank, it didn't work for me, this amount of preparation and, and research. And I've learnt since what worked for me, but, mate, I was shitting myself because I was like, oh, this is not the way I go about it. <laughs> this is – and I didn't know at that stage that you've got to go down your own path. Right. So I was overwhelmed by the research that was being done and the approach to television that I was being shown. And then the morning of the first day, you won't remember this – you said, hey, Muscles, as you always call me. I don't know why I think you're taking the piss. Hey, Muscles, come with me. We'll go for a walk over in the paddock. And I saw you walk down the Formula One paddock with some people you knew and some people you didn't know, and you just interacted and went up and introduced yourself to people you didn't know, whether it was Ross Braun or, or Jean Todd or Jock Clear that was a, a, an engineer at the time or Flavio Briatore. You didn't care who it was. And you had this incredible way about you where high-profile, big-deal people in Formula One, you were so warm and open, they responded to you. And you were, it was like you were developing these relationships on the go down the paddock and I was trailing along and you were always saying, oh, here's, here's Mark, he's working with us, he, he might be in the pit lane, wherever, blah, blah, you are introducing me as you went. But that is when it hit me that it, for me to succeed, it wasn't going to be about – I had to be researched, but I didn't have to fill my brain. I had to be able to get on with people and converse with people. And to me, Diff, that has been your greatest strength and where you are today, that ability to develop relationships and have conversations rather than necessarily go off Wikipedia and stats. Yeah, right. Is that a fair summation? Yeah. You won't remember any of that, but, geez, it made an impact on me. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad. I'm glad it did. I, we probably wouldn't be able to do that these days. They'd tell us to get out. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But um, I, I, think, I think you're spot on because, and not just not the point you're making about me, I think you're spot on from a, a, a topic in, 
in uh, in total because um, you know stats are stats are stats, and you can use them to embellish the story. But what's the story? You know. Yeah. This you know if 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 if, if you know if, if this is the third time he or she's won, that's great. But how did that come about? You know, like at the Indianapolis 500 a couple of weeks ago. Elio Castro Neves won for the fourth time. Well, there's only three other people who have done that in, in the 100-plus year history of mm. the event, and he did it. The story is he's 46 bloody years old with, with a wife and a kid, and, and it was the first time in 20 years he hadn't driven for Roger Penske, you know, the most successful team owner and team at the Indianapolis 500, and he went out on a limb. He went with a small team, and, and you know, he still had that burning desire. That's the story. The fourth time is a stat. It's a great stat. Yeah. But the story is his journey and his like his burning desire still in his mid 40s to to race and win the Indy 500. So, yeah, it's a blend and if you don't talk to people, you don't build those relationships and you don't have those 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 stories, you know. So, V8 supercars. I'm going to ask you one now. And you won't also remember the connection to this. It's not about when we cried in the pit lane at Phillip Island, is it? No, it's not about when we cried. You can tell that story if you wish, though. Well, go on, take us down a sidetrack while you're here. Well, it was the end of it was the end of it was the end of a ten year period on on Network Ten, and and uh, you know I'd, I'd come back to Australia for two years. I, I had some personal reasons, divorce, etc., and I had to. I was kind of wedged into going back to Australia and, and it was great. I, I'm, I'm glad that that happened um, uh, for, for many reasons. But the first race of the Australian Touring Car Championship, 1997, and that was my first really big, big gig. And then the last race of 2006 at Phillip Island. And, and that was the end of an era. It was the end, it was the, you know, the last, uh, one of the last times I got to work uh, on a full-time basis with my oldest friend in life, Daryl Beatty, and with my two great mates, Greg Rust and Neil Crompton. And the four of us were standing in a pit box and we said farewell to a decade of V8s on Network 10. Mm. And as the credits rolled, there we were, four grown men, and, and we were bloody crying like babies. So this is where I'm going to – now, I'll have to put this up. I'm going to now talk about a photo with you, Diff, which I've never done on the show. So I guess I put it up on social media when it comes out or put it in the show notes. But this is... Is this us in Bathurst? Yeah. Is I, it I, us in Bathurst? I don't have... That's in my no, office. Is it really? That's in my office right in front of my laptop. I don't have many photos. So this is uh, you with your mates, Crompton, um, Bill Woods, Daryl Beattie, Mort. Mort, who was... Kylie the, King. Yeah, and Kylie King and myself. And I don't know, Channel 10 had us rolling in brown shirts at the day. We looked like, I'm not going to say what we look like, but I'm not sure it was cutting edge fashion. That that was probably been our last Bathurst, I guess, at that stage, wouldn't it have been? It, well, it was. That was, Hugo, that was Hugo Boss gear, though. Yeah, it was. Puzzles. And that, that's, <laughs> that's the, the famous Brock Bathurst. It is. This weekend has been all about farewelling the great man, Peter Brock, the friend and mentor to Craig Lowndes. Which, to me, is your most iconic line in Australian commentary where Lowndes won and you said he wins on the day he farewells his friend. And that, I watched it again last night, that's as good a line as you could deliver, mate. Yeah, I, I, if you listen carefully, my voice starts to quiver because yep. I, I was I was just in the moment. Uh, the words came, and um, and I was engulfed. I was engulfed with the emotion of the moment. This will be a huge outpouring of emotion. Ten years in the waiting. Lounge and Wind Cup do it. That is an incredible moment. 
Good job, mate. Unbelievable. And Campbell Little is in tears. You can imagine. And Winkup fist pumping on the wall. Lowndes has done it on the day he farewelled his friend. During that broadcast, um, Peter's girlfriend, Julie, and his brother came up into the booth and like tapped Neil and I on the back and we looked around and just that whole, the way that whole day went early in the morning, uh, they had the tribute with the nine Brock cars and they were driven around the mountain by, you know, Craig Lowndes and Greg Murphy and, and, mm. and various guys. Craig Lowndes, tough moment for him at the start of a very long day. We'll be back. And, um, we, we'd, we'd mixed up what we were doing on the broadcast that day early in the pre-race show, and I remember I was asked to leave the booth, go down to, to pit lane and do a pre-race interview with David Brabham. And um, Brabs and I had finished the interview and we were kind of standing on the pit wall watching this the ceremony, then the national anthem and, and the, the, the ceremonial drive. And Lounsey got out and, and when it was over, he he was just just sobbing yeah and uh, I, I, I said I said to David Brabham I said well that's him gone that, that's him done for the day <laughs> and and I, I I couldn't be more happy to be more wrong yeah you know because the way that story played out the story I was going to ask you about we're at Queensland Raceway and old mate crackers I'm sure it was Queensland <laughs> Raceway old mate crackers decided the night before to get, was it was it a, a a peewee fifty? What happened, Guru? <laughs> we were, uh, we were. We I just were, remember we the boss all... being really annoyed the next day. <laughs> we, we we were at the uh, Supercross Masters at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre on the on the Saturday night before the Queensland Five Hundred, and um, yes, because our old producer and friend Michael Heaton, we were making the, those Supercross shows to go yes. on ten. And I had an opportunity to go in the race on the TTR 90. So, come on, give me some credit. They were a little more powerful than a Pee Wee 50. Okay, uh, mate. <laughs> not, not much. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I was just, uh, these crazies just took off and I was so far out of my element and I was just rolling all the jumps and uh, it was crazy. You know, for as long as I'd worked in Supercross, and, and I, mainly my position was walking out onto the tabletop and interviewing riders and then going back in the stands and commentating. You know, I'd never seen the, the, the ferociousness <laughs> of a supercross track. Here I am rolling around like, you know, I had no business being out there. And I wasn't even trying. And actually, I was, I was about to pull off. I was about to go back and see Hito. And uh, I just had the most awkward fall on this thing and just snapped my leg and just de- demolished my right leg. It looked like a boomerang. And... Um, so clearly I wasn't going to be at the uh, at Queensland Raceway the next day. That was the first time I'd ever missed a broadcast. And do you know what the flow-on effect from that? And I, can, I only remember this because our great friend and former boss David White messaged me this last night. And as he told me that, I said to him, do you know what the follow-on effect was that? So it would have been you and Crompton with Daz in the pit lane covering the V8s. Daz and Rusty, Daz and Rusty, yeah. Yeah, Daz and Rusty yeah, yeah. and Bill Woods hosting. Yeah. So you couldn't call. So I reckon Rusty must have had to go on a commentary. And little old me who was doing a pre-produced show called Trackside got the call in the morning from Murray Lomax saying, mate, you're going to have to do a pit lane reporting on the V8s. And you've got to know what you know in life, Diff, and you've got to know what you don't know in life. And it'd be fair to say <laughs> you blokes always used to joke with me that I I possibly didn't know as much about VH as you guys did. And i never forget, mate, I had to do the pit lane and your man Paul Radisic, 
came in and he had an issue with the car and I thought, oh, I better go and ask what the problem was. Taking your approach, go and ask directly. And the chief mechanic said, oh, he's got a problem with the oil line. Now, I don't know my way around an engine like you guys do, Diff. And I said on air, the first cross I did on a V8 supercar coverage, yeah, uh, Neil threw down to me, yeah, what's the problem, Mark? Well, he's got a problem with his oil line. Now, with the greatest possible respect to Neil, who's one of the great guys and broadcasters out there, I'm not sure he was thinking I was the right man to be in the pit lane. And he <laughs> he came back, Diff, and asked me a question and said there's a lot of oil lines in a car, Mark. Which one Which specifically one? is it? <laughs> Mate, I'm here on live TV for the first time with no idea what he is talking about or what I'm talking about. And I I would have gone something along the lines of, oh, mate, yeah, there's a lot of oil down here. Pretty hard to tell. I'll get back to you thinking I've got <laughs> no idea. And it was your fault, mate, because you went and crashed your, and broke your leg on that bloody motorbike. <laughs> oh, my goodness. David, and David White didn't talk to me for about two days. He wanted to wait, he wanted to wait and see what so, the outcome you, was. You, you end up back in America. You, you got to live your dream through NBC by calling Formula One. Yep. You got to call the entirety of the 2016 Hamilton-Rosberg season, which was a, a standout. Great start, Bell. from the team and rightly so they will be disgusted with their driver that is pretty the perfect season for formula one lee it is over it is over was it everything you thought it would be going to monaco etc and and calling like mate you, you're you're a teacher from queensland and you're in the monaco <laughs> pit lane as the main man for an enormous american operation first time on network television Formula One's most glamorous race comes to NBC. Formula One, Monaco Grand Prix, live Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern. Do you know what the favourite part about Monaco was in addition to where we stayed and just the whole glitz and glamour and you know you know what it's like. It's, it's yep. just opulence on another level and just all, just everything. You know what one of the most fun parts was? What's that? Was that we would host the show on the Prince Rainier Quay, which is this big structure that stops, you know, that, that creates the harbour. And we, uh, nobody had ever put a hosting desk up there. And NBC pushed the boundaries and they finally convinced the, the powers that be to do it. And so we had this big marquee up there and we had our hosting uh, set and there was myself and, and my colleagues, David Hobbs and Steve Matchett, and we had Will Buxton in the pits. And um, we would host the, sh- the pre-race show up there. Huh. And we would pre-record the final segment of the pre-race show. We pre-record gotcha. that, right? So that was in the can. That was ready to go. But everything up to that point, we'd do live. The second to last segment, I was the only one in it. David, they'd cut David and Steve loose and then I'd go afterwards. Well, where they would go is they'd run down the stairs past the Monaco International School. There'd be a tender waiting for them. They would zip across the harbour to the commentary boxes and then run up the stairs and then the tender would come back for me and we'd have to make all that happen in one segment and a commercial break. 
And sometimes it didn't all work out that great. Sometimes right. we, like I almost missed the start of the Grand Prix one year. How come? Because the tender went somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, on this journey as well, the first – I'm just trying to explain to people the scope of where you've ended up. The first non-American to call the Indianapolis 500, which you just called again a couple of weeks ago. I think it's probably your, your third yep. crack at it. The soul is back at the speedway. The fans are back in the stands. This is, and always will be, the greatest spectacle in racing. As they come to green, this is the Indianapolis 500 for everybody to see. It's, tell me about, Scotty McLaughlin, go back and listen to his episode, describe what it was like as a driver, what's it like as a broadcaster to call an event, which is on par, mate, with, you know, there's the Super Bowl in the States of the World Series, there's the Kentucky Derby, I'm missing a few, but there's the Indianapolis 500. That, that's the area in which, the, in which this event sits. Like 450,000 people at the racetrack. It's, it's, it's immense. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, there had been foreigners before, but not as play-by-play. No. Um, so, so Jackie Stewart and David Hobbs, they'd done it, but nobody as, as the um, play-by-play caller. So, uh, and to be an Aussie, you know, to do it is an enormous sense of pride, uh, and that wasn't lost on me. Um, I've been very fortunate over the years for, because I've been here for so long, that the American audience knows my voice now, and, and um, I, I think in a way that they... Uh, accept me as one of, as one of their own, but the enormity of the event uh, is is just. I mean, it's colossal. It is colossal, and that's what made last year, Howie, with nobody there. Yeah, so bizarre and so weird. And this year, it was like, I don't know. It's like trying to kick a footy that's not inflated, right? Uh, this year, that that footy was back at match pressure. Yeah. And okay. It was great. Even though there wasn't a capacity crowd there, um, they say that there was 135,000, I think, uh, and it's quite a few of us think there was more, more like something around 200,000 there. It was great. The, 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 the fans are the soul. The fans are the soul of the sport. So you think about that. How many is at the G at a, at a, at a grand final? 100,000. 110? Yeah, 100. 100,000. 100. So you think about we, there, were tw- there was twice as many as, a, as a, uh, an AFL grand final and it still wasn't anywhere near capacity. And... Uh, it, it, it's it's crazy, and you know what it's like because you're at live sport all the time. They, even though you're in a broadcast booth, you feed off that crowd. You do, like yeah. it's it, it's like fire and oxygen, and it, you know it's it gives you it gives you that extra juice. And um, but we we commentate from the ninth floor of the pagoda tower, that big beautiful yep. structure above the yard of bricks, and we can see all the way around to the short shoot in between turn three and four, all the way up the front straight and into turn one, and. When they're coming to green and we're like when it's time to go, I mean, just your hair stand up. You know, it's like wow, because it's the, it's the biggest motor race in the world, and it's it's pretty cool to call it. I have to say, there's a four-time win on the line for Elio Castro Neves. Look at the crowd; they know history's on the line. Welcome to the four-time club, Elio Castro Neves. That is awesome. More of Diff shortly. For those that like motorsport and broadcasting or just like good stories, hit up episode 93 of the podcast featuring the voice of Formula One, Martin Brundle. Then they put me in an ambulance that had no air condition. I passed out. 
And they took me to this little medical box somewhere uh, and got my the toe of my or my foot caught in the wire meshing wire from there. Put me in there and realised they could do nothing for me in there. And then put me back in the ambulance, took me to hospital. Uh, and I remember this big nurse kept coming in with a with a pin and and just uh, pricking the end of my uh, big toe, going, "Can you feel this?" And I, I realised what was going on. Um, eventually, I'm like, yes, I can feel that. I can feel that. Because they were going to take my foot off. Because uh, I was starting to get, it was because there was no blood going around. It was gangrene or whatever. It was, they were worried about that. And Professor Sid Watkins, bless him, came in, took over, stopped them cutting my foot off because that would have been the end of my career in a hurry. That's Martin Brundle on episode 93 of the show. On we go with Diff. You mentioned the Americans. Was there or has there been much resistance? Obviously, it hasn't been a great deal because of where you are being a foreigner on their television screens. Yeah, yeah, in, 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 you know, on occasion and in specific circumstances and quite humorously, a lot of the time I get accused of being British. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, particularly when I did NASCAR, you know. Yeah, okay. uh, you know, I think it was probably a 70-30 split. Seventy were cool with it or okay with it. Thirty uh, percent didn't want it. Didn't want me on their TV uh, sets. But they were like, "Who is this damn British guy?" But um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've been here long enough and worked on enough different things that, but in particularly in the motor racing sphere, anyway, if somebody heard my voice and didn't know me, um, that would be quite strange. I think in, in, again in the, in the little motor racing pond. That, that would be because I've done, you know, other than drag racing, I think I've done just about every form of motorsport there is here. And the instant feedback you get on social media diff, how you, how do you find it? How do you deal with it? I'm sure the majority of us, we love your work, but I'm sure there is some pretty strong feedback the other way. How do you deal with that, mate? Yeah, um, you deal with it by... Uh, I mean, in the early days of, particularly on Formula One, you get some really savage stuff. And uh, about what you were doing, yeah. about where you were from, give me a, yeah, a all, taste. Yeah, all, all, all of the above, Howie. All of the above, because yep. you know we know we know what a toxic environment social media can be. And um, so, yeah, it could have been anything about the words I used, the way I sounded, or whatever. And 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 my colleagues were getting it too. They F one. Uh, fans are, are a fantastic group, but there's an element of them that are that are pretty vicious. And so I don't think whatever you did, you could do anything right. Um, so in the early days, I used to fight back until uh, until I got my ass kicked a couple of times from management, and then, um, <laughs> and, then and so then I curbed my ways. And and now you just yeah, you, you just roll with it. I mean, if you can if you can get over yourself to get over it. Uh, for a few hours, you'll end up forgetting about it. And by the next day, you can't even see it on your timeline. So you may as well move on rather than fight. You know, to me, you know, a, a dear friend and colleague, Steve Matchett, taught me, you know, silence is the most powerful tool. In the day when we wouldn't get American sports broadcasts, one of my great joys was early days traveling around America was watching their sports broadcasts before I was even in it because they were the best in the world. And I think without a doubt now, people in Australia do a great job, the South Africans do a great job, the English do a great job, but I think the Americans, whether it's their live sport or their shows, for whatever reason, seem to be a level, if not a few levels above the rest of the world in sports broadcasting. What do the Americans do well 
above what everyone else is doing? Why are American sports broadcasts and your broadcasts so good and so slick and so sharp and so informative? Is it a resources thing? Is it an attitude? Like every time I interview an American, I think, geez, they're good talent. <laughs> what is it? What is it about American sports broadcasts that make them so good, mate? Um, well, I can't speak for the ones that I haven't been a part of, but but what I have been a part of is that um, there's a pretty relentless uh, attitude to preparation and execution. So, uh, and, and, you know, we've just come off the Indianapolis 500. We've got Detroit doubleheader IndyCar coming up and it won't be like our producers or any, any of the on-air talent, anyone sitting back just going, you know, hey, that was pretty, pretty darn good at Indy. We'll, we'll just coast it in from here. They're going to be saying, what are the storylines? What are we going to do? What do we need? What, what's being done? You know, we've got a, a, a conference call, a Zoom call tomorrow, and it's going to be same full on as ever. And so I would say that preparation and execution, and then they're always looking to do things different, but that's no different to, to Aussie TV. I mean, uh, Aussie television, Aussie sports television is, is, is fantastic. So I don't know if I can pinpoint one thing uh, one particular thing outside of what I've said, but yeah, they're, um, they're very driven, very driven to make it look good, to make it sound good, to make it be entertaining. Um, what would, you know, um, what, what, what can we give the viewer where they're going to walk away with something memorable? You know, what, what, what are we going to do? So yeah, there's a, there's a pretty, pretty good level of determination and drive there. Sounds there's more from what you were describing about your athletics upbringing with the NBC, it sounds like there's, and those Zoom calls, more analysis on performance, what we put to air, how we go about looking at it and how we can improve on it. That's not something necessarily we do a great deal of here, looking back on what we've done and how we can improve it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've worked with some um, with some producers, not necessarily at NBC, but at other places as well, where on the Monday morning, uh, after a Saturday or a Sunday broadcast, the entire team will get an email and it'll be this long and it'll be broken down into audio, graphics, booth, pit road, whatever, blah, 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 hmm. blah. These, these are the goods and these are the bads. So let's try and be better next time out. I'll tell you the other, tell you the other one really big thing, Howie, that, that I've learned and in particular since being with NBC at the Olympics. I thought I was a, I thought I was a decent storyteller. And I came to learn that I didn't really know how to tell a good story on TV until I did Olympics with the NBC. They really take a lot of passion in that and they, they, they not force you. That's the wrong word. They encourage you. They drive you. They inspire you to go and find out something about that athlete, um, or that driver or that rider or that whoever it is, something that will stick with, um, with the, with the audience. I can recall being at the Athens Games with Channel 7 and I reckon we had 45 people diff in the IBC, the International Broadcast Centre, so 45 Australians working on the broadcast in Athens. There mm-hmm. would have been a lot back in Melbourne and we were based next to NBC and I met a guy early doors at an event from NBC and he, I was out maybe shooting a basketball story and he said, oh, where's your production team to get this story together? And I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, well, where's your researcher? And he said, and I said, mate, this, you're looking at it. You know, this is what, and he said, oh, you know, I'm doing a similar job to you. I've got four blokes. He said, when you get a chance, come take me through. And he took me through the NBC position at the IBC and he said, yeah, we've got two and a half thousand people here. Mm-hmm. 
resources are at a whole nother level as well, I guess, which adds to the pressure when you're the front man representing all those researchers, Diff, and producers and directors and staff. You're you're the end product they're putting out. Well, the good thing is that I like to always I like to always um, uh, impress the researchers because if they can hear you use some of their words or, or stuff that they've put together, yeah. then that's that's really nice for them to, you know, be like, uh, you know, I make you some lamingtons and you don't eat, you know, I make you a dozen lamingtons and you don't eat one of them. Yeah. I, I'm offended, but if they can give us some great <laughs> information and then we actually take the time to read, do our homework and use that information on air, I see that as a, as a as a really good compliment to them, and I'm I'm needing I'm needing that, and I use that. I need that as a tool. So, but yeah, the resources are are, are incredible. So, it's kind of like the um, like the football team or, or the racing team or whatever. If we give you the resources to do your job, then th- there's no excuses at your end. And the American athletes, the talent, as they are called in the industry. Why are they so good, Diff? I, I, I talk about it constantly on this podcast. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have the tall poppy syndrome here and Buddy Flanken kicks 12 goals and he can walk off the ground and say, I was on fire today rather than the boys hit me up. Your structures and processes, I couldn't have done it with without them. Americans value team, but they value individual. And when you hear their athletes speak, Diff, I love it. So they must be fantastic to deal with because they're not afraid to individualise and when they do well to say, I did well today. They are. They're, they're very. They're very self confident, aren't they? Which is yes. which is good. It's 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 uh, it's it's refreshing. It doesn't have to be called cocky. It's just self confidence. Um, but there's a massive talent pool to draw from, right? So what's what's the population of Australia now? Twenty five million. Yeah, twenty six. You know, yeah, twenty six. Yep. Yeah. So even if you said Australia at a stretch was thirty million, there's three hundred and thirty million here. So you know you, you, your uh, your talent pool is a lot. Um, broader and, and deeper. So um, the, the, the collegiate system drives it. Only a couple more for you, mate. You've been great with your time and I know it's getting late in your part of the world. We, we've talked a lot about um, a journey and, and broadcasting. What do you reckon the keys to sports broadcasting are? It's a broad question. I, I th- it, and, and this is in your mind. I'm not talking about with NBC or in Australia or America. What, what are you trying to do to bring the best product to the table when you're on air? Be um, be true to the sport and to the viewer. Um, make it entertaining. You know, it's got to, it's got to be having fun, right? Like as as kids, um, you know, as as kids, you can remember watching sport and loving sport. I can remember we'd always say to mum, "What's for lunch?" Well, we sit down and you know watch Wide World of Sports on a Saturday afternoon. You know, um, and hmm. you, you know. You've got to, it's got to be entertaining. You've got to be true and authentic to the sport and, and to your viewers and just have fun. I mean, um, more often than not, the, the, the teams that I work with, when you meet people at the events or fans in the, in the paddock or wherever it might be, they say, sounds like you guys have fun. And we say, well, we do. Same as you guys do on cricket and on footy. Yeah. You've got to make, if you can make it fun, I think the viewers have fun with you. And, and, um, so, um, I think if you can be a part of it, if you're not just talking about it or talking on it, you can be a part of it. I think that helps the viewer have a have a better experience. That's 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 what I think good sports broadcasting is. Couldn't agree more. Now you get the big penguin. Uh oh. 
got the hammer, got the hammer <laughs> yeah. at the end. As you know, he, he can come on a bit strong. Um, all right, here we go. No preface to the Big Penguin today. Hey, Diff, Big Penguin Great job calling the Indy 500. You nailed it. My dad's favourite racing car drivers, Jack Perkins, Lewis Hamilton and Scotty McLaughlin. Mine is Lewis Hamilton. But you can't get out of this question. Not heaps, not heaps, just one. What is your favourite racing car driver? He doesn't want a selection, Diff. He wanted one (laughs) name. I said, that's going to be tough for my man, Crackers. He said, oh, one name only, Dad. Oh. My goodness me. And I explained to him that you work and people will listen to this and drivers will hear it and they'll say, why didn't you pick me, mate? I thought we were tight. All right. Who's your favourite, Diff? Oh, my goodness. Do you want me to make it? How about we do this? How about we do this? Uh, How about we we narrow it down to – how about we just say Australian? How about we just keep it domestic? How about we just keep it domestic? Okay. Yeah? Yep, righto. Dick Johnson. Why Dick Johnson? <laughs> well, he's a Queenslander. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I just, I grew up with him. I grew up watching, you know, Dick Johnson and, and uh, you know, it's a, thrill, it's a thrill to, you know, call him a friend for many years. And, um, yeah, I just, he was just gritty. He was just tough. And, yeah, you know, I loved it when he came to America and did NASCAR and he wasn't afraid of, you know, he got stuck into Richard Petty and, you know, <laughs> Dick, Dick's, and he's still the same kind of guy. And I, I, I love that about him. But that's a tough question to end with. Bloody hell. I love the way you negotiated it by only naming one, yet not alienating <laughs> world motorsport. Very clever. Uh, one final question for you, and you know the show always finishes this way. For those out there that want to achieve some success in their field, the youngsters, Diff, and I know this is close to your heart because you've got a couple of young boys that are getting to that age and stage where they're trying to make their way in the world, and you'll be giving them this advice. For those out there that are young that want to achieve success in their field, what would you say to them? I, w- I would say that um, in enthusiasm always wins out. Passion <laughs> always wins out. So if you have something, uh, if you want to get into, it doesn't have to be sports broadcasting. It might be uh, news journalism. It might be w- whatever it is. Have a passion and something that you really know a lot about is going to give you the step ahead of the next person. So because of your level of enthusiasm, knowledge and passion, that's gonna put you at least one step ahead. And then there are gonna be opportunities that come along. Well, first of all, be open-eyed and open-minded enough to recognize those opportunities. But second of all, and most importantly, be brave enough and tenacious enough to act on those opportunities. Because plenty of people can see the opportunity or acknowledge the opportunity, but few actually go after the opportunity and act on the opportunity. So act on it when you see it. I love it, mate. And I've loved having this chat with you. That is that is you all over. What what's the name? What was the name of the place we used to go after Bathurst the night of the Sunday night and there'd be pizza and a few beers? It was was it the church or something? What was the name of that joint, Diff? Oh I yeah, can't. yeah, yeah. It's not there anymore. No, what was but it, it called? Was the, it was it was the church. Was it the church? Was it? Yeah, I think it was the church. Some of my fondest memories are watching you and your mate Daryl Beatty 
a couple of bottles of white wine in after a Bathurst. And and I'm, and now I sit there and I watch, you know, I'm watching Scotty McLaughlin race. I was watching him race at Indy. And to hear your voice on those broadcasts, and I think, oh, that's that, that's that loose cannon that used to <laughs> run amok after Bathurst in the church. And he, I know he was a aerobics instructor. I know he was a school teacher. To hear you on those broadcasts, it makes me smile every time and, and I hope people now appreciate and they listen and understand where you've come from because I, in some ways I can't believe what you've achieved, that you've rung Bernie Eccleston and you've, you've, you didn't get there and then you called Formula One and you're just a bloke with no training in the field and you've shown people that they can achieve what they really want to achieve and, and I don't know if people in Australia fully understand your story. I hope more people hear of it now. Because it is a cracking story about a bloke that had a goal and has been able to achieve it, mate. And it's it's a cracker, mate. It's an absolutely wonderful story. Thanks, Howie. Well, it's uh, it's extra special to do to have this chat because I haven't had a chat this lengthy uh, about this topic. Um, I, I don't think ever. So thank you. Thanks for thanks for being the uh, the delivery vehicle, and uh, I'm thrilled just to be on the Howie Games. Hey, hey, are you going to send me one of those bloody stickers to America? Okay, mate. So, mate, we're getting, we're getting into, hang on, we are getting, don't worry about a sticker. Uh Uh-oh. We just haven't launched yet, but this is a pre-exclusive. We're getting into merch, brother. Love it. So I'll get you you a T-shirt or a hat or something and you you wear it to Indy for me and and get your man Mario Andretti. I'll get a couple for him as well, Guru. That's that's what we got. That's how we finish this. I'll, 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 uh, I'll get Mario on here for you. Mate, you're a star. Hey, best of luck at the Olympics. I'll make sure I'm watching and listening to the way you call everything you'll dominate. Good on you, mate. Stay safe and uh, and continue to dominate as you always have been. Thanks, Howie. Thank you to Lee Diffie for being Lee Diffie. No doubt he will nail the Olympics as he does everything he broadcasts. What an opportunity that is. Earned through hard work and having a crack. To you all. Thanks for listening and all the positive messages at MarkHoward03 on the socials. It fills me with joy as so many people are enjoying the show. Until next week, have a great week, by the way. Until next week with Snowboard God, Sean White, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try Listener